You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. In colour. Welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. Um, we are now in glorious colour. We have reached season seven in our season by season adventure through Doctor Who. Um, we're, we're in colour. We're in the seventies. We've got John Pertwee as the Doctor. It's all completely different to the Doctor Who we were talking about uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, so, as ever. For these season by season episodes, I am joined by Jimmy. Hello. And I'm also joined by Greg. Hello, friends. It's it's all very different now. Uh, Doctor Who went through a massive, massive transformation between 1969 and 1970. Um, and the first story of this season is actually completely different to, I'd say, any other certainly classic Doctor Who story there is. It was all filmed on film. It looks very nice. It got the Blu-ray upscale before everything else did, and it does give it a sort of a unique look and feel, so that's something we can discuss as we go on. But first of all, I'm going to ask you what your favourite stories from this season are. So, Jimmy, you go first. It's a bit of a tough choice. Uh, It's a very consistent and great season, I think I'd have to give it to Spearhead, but yeah, as I say, a close call, but Spearhead for me was just such an incredible start to the season and to the new era, and so yeah, it gets the nod for me. Um, What about you, Greg? It's a cliched answer, but it's a celebrated classic of the classic series for a reason, and I'm going with Inferno as my favourite of the season. I think I'm going to have to agree with you uh, there. Yeah, Inferno, very, very excellent story. But it's it's so difficult to pick from this season. It's We've only got four stories. You know, they sort of extend, well, extended the length of the serials for the most part and cut the episode count almost in half. But the result was just a ridiculous upshot in quality. It's It's amazing just how good this season is and how hard it is to pick a favourite. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go Inferno, but on another day, I could honestly pick any other story from this season. It's so consistently brilliant. Um, first up then is, as we've said, Spearhead from Space. Um, it's it's a not-so-soft reboot, I think, it's fair to say. It's a pretty solid sort of statement about what Doctor Who is going to be for the foreseeable future, very different to before. 
Um, there's so much to pick apart from this story. So, Jimmy, you said it was your favourite. I will let you pick apart first. Okay, well, for me, it's just... I, I absolutely love this story, but, I mean, the 60s has always been my favourite decade of Doctor Who, and so suddenly we're in the 70s, and it is very 70s, not just with the colour, but the whole style, the whole vibe of the story just feels totally different, and I think it would even if we're in black and white. Um, it's uh, such a great introduction for the Doctor. I mean, he has the whole semi-unconscious, barely there for so much of the story. And when he does come out, though, he just instantly captures the role and makes it his own. It's not quite solidified to what it will be later. He's still, I think, in this story in particular, there's a slightly Trouton-esque vibe to some of the lines and the way he plays it. Um, And I think that was particularly intentional in the scene where he first wakes up and he's talking to the doctor, sorry, talking to the brigadier and he's like, oh, that's not me at all in the mirror. It's almost like Troughton's possessing him and he's still got that persona that by the end of the story he's solidified into the Pertwee Doctor, the third Doctor that we know, and it's brilliant. And I love the whole dynamic he has instantly with Liz and the Brigadier. I mean, the Brigadier got on well enough with Troughton, but Troughton's Doctor, but here the Doctor's just instantly sort of dismissive of him, but he's at the same time instantly like, oh, this Liz person's awesome, I like her, and introducing himself with the Delphon eye waggle and that. It's just such a great start to the dynamic of the trio, and, yeah, I really love it. Um, the few weird things with the story, I would say, is, um, for one thing, I was listening a bit more carefully when I watched it this time, and when they find the Doctor's body, as you see when he first appears, he opens the TARDIS door and he falls out on the floor, but then the dialogue acts as though it happens entirely differently. Like they mentioned to the brigadier that they found the doctor in a police box as if they went into it. And of course, there's also the whole thing with the hiding of the TARDIS key and they act as if the doors were shut when they found the doctor, which of course you see they aren't. So it was a little bit odd to see that they couldn't keep their own continuity with that one shot, but um yeah, that's one tiny quibble in an otherwise brilliant story. Um, although there is one more quibble, actually, now that I think about it. The whole portrayal of the country folk and Sam Seeley being just such a ridiculous cliche and, oh, I ain't said that i seen those Thunderbolts and that. It's a bit over the top and sort of detracts a bit from the story. It's just a bit too silly. But, yeah, again, as I say, it's tiny problems with an otherwise brilliant story. I mean, the sort of uh, the bumpkin character of Sam Seeley, it's very, very Robert Holmes, I think. Um, we, we've already had something similar. We've had Milo Clancy in uh, The Space Pirates, actually a very, very similar kind of character. And when we talked about The Space Pirates last time, I kind of mentioned this is a type of character that we are going to see quite a lot of uh, moving forward. It just seems to be a bit of a Holmes trope. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it does a lot of heavy lifting in this story. And the big one is not just to introduce the new Doctor, but introduce, you know, the Brigadier and Liz as regulars as well. And it, it does an awful lot. And I think it, um, it it sort of provides a blueprint of how to relaunch Doctor Who. And I think 
it, it's been tried and tested quite a few times now. I think Russell T. Davis very clearly had this in mind when he wrote both Rose and The Christmas Invasion. Uh, both stories are very, very sort of similar to this, share a lot of beats and themes and so on. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on Spearhead? I love it. I think it's really well made. It wasn't their fault or their idea to have it all on film. I think it was because of a labor action that they couldn't use the studios at all. But the fact that they had to do it all on film gives it this very different look and feel to other Doctor Who stories because they're not using multiple cameras. Even dialogue scenes of characters in rooms are, are shot much more cinematically as opposed to like it's in a, in a TV studio and you, you actually get you know, prolonged close-ups on actors' faces and so forth that you don't see elsewhere. You've also got that very you know, 70s color film grainy appearance, which is, which is interesting. The Blu-ray release of this is fantastic because it really brings out so many details in the episode that are kind of hard to notice in the fuzzy color that we're used to from the Pertley era. Like, I never really picked up before how the, the staff working at the doll factory all have just a little bit of waxy makeup on their faces to you know, demonstrate that they're just constructed out of plastic because you never get a full close-up of any of them to really notice it, but you can definitely see it as they as they walk past in the in the Blu-ray on the film sequences. It's also a very innovative story, the idea of mannequins coming to life and breaking their way out of store windows and, and so forth is something that Doctor Who has done multiple times now, but was rightly viewed as, as terrifying at the time and would be revised and enhanced for Terror of the Autons in Season 8. Um, you also get a very good introduction of not just the Brigadier and Liz, but, but Unit as a whole. Although you do... I want This is the third story we have with the Brigadier, and it's also the third time that we see him lead troops into battle. And it's the third time that he is roundly defeated in said battle, although at least here the tide turns at the end when they expose uh, the general as a, as a duplicate. But between this and what's coming up in the Silurians, I was starting to question whether the Brigadier really knows what he's doing when he's commanding troops on the ground, but obviously that changes as, as the era goes on. Uh, John Pertwee's great. Like Jimmy was saying, you can see a lot of Patrick Troughton in his performance when he's first recovering from his regenerative trauma. I also agree that has to be deliberate. That really jumped out at me watching it this time. Uh, the music is getting into that, that 70s type of not just like composed musical pieces, but actually kind of coupling between music and effects. It, it's 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 a very defining story for Doctor Who. It's a very unique story for Doctor Who. It's one of the best looking Doctor Who stories, and it's four parts, and it really uses that running time to its to its full extent. I I think this is 
I, I said Inferno is my favorite. It is, but this would be a close second for me in this season. It does rattle along at sort of quite a nice pace and uh, gives us sort of a lot to enjoy. And it, I quite like the fact that really it it doesn't completely withhold the Doctor until the second part, but Pertwee doesn't really get to shine until the second episode. That first part is a lot more about establishing you know, Earth as the Doctor's home now and what what that Earth consists of with Brigadier Unit Liz and so on. It's, yeah, it, it sort of spreads it out quite nicely. We get to see a bit of the Doctor, we get a scene or two where he regains consciousness, but he doesn't get up and out of the hospital till the second episode. And I think that's a very, very good way of kind of almost teasing this new Doctor, you know, the, the, the Troutness performance that you discussed and the fact that we don't see an awful lot of him. Uh, I I quite like that, really. You have to wait till episode two till you till you fully get to see him, till we properly meet him. Um, the Autons, fantastic concept. Um, it was a really obvious thing to do, really, revisit them. Um, and they've been revisited a few times now, and I think that each time they've been used effectively. At the end of the day, they are just a monster that can appear out of nowhere and start slaughtering members of the public and so on. And it's, uh, you know, we get the idea of uh, duplicates as well, which is used quite effectively. We've seen duplicates in previous Doctor Who stories, but I think um, it's, it's sort of something that's kind of explored in quite a clever way here. Um, it's certainly done better than, uh, the Doctor duplicate in the chase, for example. I know we're casting back quite a few seasons there, but yeah, um, it's it's just a really, really good, strong, solid production. And I think it's a, an excellent template of what Doctor Who would be and perhaps should be um, for quite a few seasons now. Um, there's definitely a change in tone when we get to season eight and we get to Terror of the Autons, but it's... You could argue that it's a remake quite comfortably, um, and I uh, I think that that's just a testament to how good a story Spearhead is. Um, we'll move on. We'll move on to our second story, which I'm going to give it its full title, Doctor Who and the Silurians. Um, I believe it was an error, and it probably was just supposed to be called the Silurians, but what we get on screen is what we're calling it, Doctor Who and the Silurians. Um, this was one of the very first stories I ever saw. It introduces um, Bessie, perhaps one of the most important elements of this era. Um, we kind of really get to see Liz... Um, doing her thing a bit better than we do in Spearhead in this story, which I think is sort of a really good thing. We'll talk a little bit more about Liz later, but this is this is a very good Liz story. Um, so, Doctor Who and the Silurians, Jimmy, what are your thoughts? Well, this story is such a great, such a great, not start to the season because it's the second, but it's almost, as I said last time, Spearhead is more the Doctor settling in and he's still a bit Troutonesque. This is sort of the almost proper start of um, Pertwee's Doctor as a character and I think it's just an excellent story to start with and it instantly sort of casts a line between the previous era and the current. I mean, 
in the previous era, you never really, almost never saw good aliens. I mean, I suppose you could argue some of the Sensorites, some of the Iridians and so on, but basically if aliens appeared, they were usually, this is evil. You know, there are things in the universe, terrible things that must be fought. And yet in this story, you instantly have the Doctor being like, they're just as valid as humans. They have a right to live and trying to befriend them, trying to find out what they want. And it's just such an interesting shift in tone for the era. and such a great well you can't really say monster species as such because you know as he points out there are good ones too it's a great introduction to the Silurians and I think when they first appeared in not first appeared but first returned in the new series I think I was very disappointed at the time that they didn't keep the old-fashioned look but having just re-watched this I think I prefer the new series approach where you can actually sort of get a bit more expression and a bit more personality but that's not to say that this original appearance is bad. I think they did a great job with what they could at the time and I think they did a good job of differentiating the Silurians. I mean, they looked all the same, but, you know, you had the good one who wants to try to make peace and you had the very high-pitched voice bad one who, we should kill them all! Um, so I think they handled, you know, having a different style of characters pretty well and... They also did a good job continuing to establish unit and to contrast them with the other scientific staff on the base. And I think that carries through the season with um, partially with Ambassador's death, but especially with Inferno. Again, you get the contrast of the base crew versus unit. And again, it's a sort of setup of a different sort of tone for the era. Um, also, I've got to say, it's interesting, you, you know, when the DVD covers and the Blu-ray covers, you always see the Doctor in his more traditional costume. but um, this story, he has so many different shifts. You have that sort of mechanic coat while he's working on Bessie at the start. Then you've got all the quarantine suit, medical gear, and then that bit where he's working on the reactor and he's just in a T-shirt. And so I think that was good. I think it's great when you see the Doctor in something other than his usual costume because it feels a bit more realistic. And so this story really did that very well. And, of course, um, the other thing with this story is it becomes a bit more topical today in these post-COVID days because you've got on the base a literal anti-vax nutter causing trouble and saying the virus isn't real while he's dying from it. So, yeah, I mean, they predicted the future very well in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, it's in some ways light years ahead of its time, this story. And it's it's arguable that this is the first time Doctor Who gets really political. We've had sort of allegories political overtones and so on before but i think this one is you know it, it does show the men in suits denying there's a virus and denying that these creatures exist despite evidence and you know there's the moral debate of well, what do we do with the silurians do we try and make peace with them do we blow them up uh, there's an awful lot going on in this one and i think it has so much more in terms of political depth than anything we've had so far. Um, we've definitely dabbled in politics before. We have had things like um, uh, The Enemy of the World and we've had, uh, I guess The War Games is a rather political story as well. But um, I think this definitely sort of takes it into new territory in terms of that sort of thing. Um, it's it's an incredibly good story, and it uses its it, it's seven episodes, it, it, which sounds so long talking about it now. You know, you could think of something like the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, seven episodes. It's it, it is a lot, but 
but this moves quite quickly and i think it's because it goes through various phases there's do the monsters exist there's the monsters do exist but we're trying to make peace with them there's we failed to make peace with them and now they've given us this virus and then there's they're trying to destroy us outright it's it sort of goes in phases and just kind of gets more and more out of control as it goes along um and it it really does have some pace because of that uh greg doctor and the silorians i think it's interesting that people accuse some of the earlier seasons of the show as being formulaic especially trout season five being the base under siege season when season seven maybe it's only because there's three of them but season seven is definitely the scientific research or space control establishment around which a bunch of things go wrong run by difficult if not outright ignorant or obsessive scientists or diplomats or or whatever it, it, this story and the following two are are very similar in their format and that's fine because it, they all work but i just find it interesting that no one ever really points at that i like this story it is my it's my least favorite of the season because i i think it it doesn't it, i think it's better in concept than actually in execution the ideas behind it are fantastic. Like, like, like you both were saying, it's it's the first Doctor Who story that that really tries to stake out a political and a, a moral position that's that's more complex than just killing is bad, not killing is good, and it it really works in that sense because it takes the time to show that there's people of different opinions on both sides of the conflict. The Silurians are not all dedicated to the destruction of humanity. The humans are not all dedicated to, in fact, most are not dedicated to the concept of peace. There's no, there's no real good guy or bad guy here, or at least that's what they're trying to go for. I do think that in execution, you still end up seeing the Silurians as the, the bad guys because we basically only meet three of them and one of them is amenable to the doctor's overtures one of them is just a complete murderous lunatic and then the third one just goes along with what the second one says because he doesn't want to get killed um whereas there's a lot more diversity of of viewpoint and multiple characters among the, the doctor and then and then the human characters I also think there's a number of instances in this story where one character will come into a room, another character will say, you're not welcome here. And then the first character will say, but I am welcome here. And then the second character will say, oh, okay. And then they go on with the scene and this happens multiple times and really seems to be there just to, to pad out the running time a little bit. There's a lot of, of back and forth running here that you you get in the next two stories, but but here it just to me seemed a little more obvious. It, it really, really, the story feels like they were finding their feet. Like there's a few moments where you can where you can see the actors are struggling with their lines a little bit, where you don't see that in the next two stories. The 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 cave set just doesn't look very good in the 
dinosaur looks terrible and, and they, they really overreached themselves on, on that whole idea. And again, you don't see that as an issue in the next two stories. So I, I think that the Silurians is a very nobly intended uh, story. I think it's got some great ideas at its heart. I just, I don't think the execution comes off as well as the rest of the season. And, but I think it's very important in that regard because it's obvious that after this story, they really figured out how to do what they're doing. And, and the next two I think are, are much better. Uh, yeah, I think I think you could well be onto something there. It it is the story that certainly doesn't look as good as the rest of the season. Um, there's, yeah, the dinosaur is shaky, and I I believe this uh, I believe Doctor and the Silurians features the first ever use of CSO in Doctor Who. I could be wrong there, but I think some of the caves are CSO'd in. Um, so it's. It, it's perhaps the team experimenting with what the limitations are. It's near enough an entirely new production team. Maybe they're just having a play, you know, what can we achieve with colour? What can we achieve with CSO? And there are mixed results in there. Um, it's... Uh, well, it, ha- it has to be the first story with CSO because that's a video effect and Spearhead doesn't have any, any video. First colour story with video. So yes, by default, it, it must be. Um, I'm pretty. I'm sure it does use some in a later episode. Use something for caves or something like that. Um, but it's it's an effect that doesn't get used more fully until the next season. But I think there are just a few, a few dabbles with it here. There's a notable one in Ambassadors of Death as well. The big screen in space control. Um, but yeah, it, it's. It, I I think it's a great story. I do think it moves along nicely. But yeah, I think maybe you're right in terms of. It just overreaching slightly, um, but it's it's definitely ambitious, and it, it's good to see that after something um, as I suppose traditional, despite what went on in production as Spearhead, um, it's nice to see something that does push the boat out a bit and experiment. Um, and it's something that the third story continues: Ambassadors of Death which is, I think it's probably the story of the season that feels longest. Uh, you were saying, Greg, that sort of we've got very, very similar formats here, but I think the thing that sort of separates these these three long stories in this season are the way they fill up their runtime. Silurians fills it up with the plot heading in different directions. You know, suddenly we're making peace, suddenly there's a virus, that kind of thing. Ambassadors um, goes for something that's a little bit more tried and tested, which is escape, recapture, escape, recapture, escape, recapture. Um, it it moves. It certainly moves slowly, uh, more slowly than Silurians, and doesn't quite have the same. Uh, feeling of momentum but it's it's still an excellent piece uh jimmy what do you think of ambassadors of death i think it's an interesting one it's um probably if i had to pick a least favorite of the season it's this but as i said at the start they're all so close that it's not a huge deal lower by any means it's um it's enjoyable but it's got a few weird things like the whole they center the whole thing on this is the Mars mission. We encountered these aliens near Mars. We encountered them on Mars. And it just feels like they're saying, oh, we've forgotten about the ice warriors. But 
I mean, they do reveal that they're not from Mars, these new ones. They're, they just happened to be at Mars when they met the humans. But it just feels weird that they focused on the Mars thing so much when they already had established Martians. Like, they should have had a Venus mission or Saturn mission or something. But, yeah, that's just a bit of a sort of quibble with the behind-the-scenes side of things. The actual story itself is quite good, and I think they do a good job with, despite the escape recapture thing being overdone, and I think they use it well to sort of keep setting up the Doctor and Liz's dynamic and, you know, when one's captured or they're both captured and trying to find each other, they, yeah, I think they sort of handle this this tried-and-true overused plot uh, rather well in that case. And I think it gives Liz a chance to shine at some points. I love that bit where the captors have got her and they're saying this thing about, you know, don't let her try anything. And she just goes to the guy who's, you know, holding her down or whatever. She's like, it's all right. I won't hurt you. And it's just, yeah, a lovely little badass bit of a line when she's in all this danger and she's just so confident and so in control despite it. I think, yeah, I think this is probably the story where Liz shines the most, which, yeah, is, is a surprise because I prefer most of the other stories, but this story, I think, handles Liz the best of the season. Uh, and the other thing that's weird with these aliens is they never crop up again. They have never done a sequel to this. They've never explained their background. You don't even know their name of the species or the name of their planet or anything, and it's so rare that you get a 70s Doctor Who story that hasn't been absolutely mined for its continuity. And yet, yeah, these, these aliens, just nothing came of them. You never see them again, never hear of them, never even get a reference, I don't think. And so, yeah, somebody at big finishes, Somebody at Big Finish is listening to this with a notebook. The Ambassadors of Life, the Ambassadors <laughs> of Earth, the Ambassadors of whatever. <laughs> Uh, or it could just be the the, the the something of twang. They could use the word twang because obviously this story is famous for its its twang in its in the. That's uh, the story thing. Really watching the twang. Actually, everyone calls it a twang, but it doesn't sound like a tank twang. It's more of a. It's yeah. Everyone calls it a twang, but I've really watched it. I'm like, hang on, this isn't a twang. Everyone's been lying to me. <laughs> Maybe we should have a competition. Who can most accurately recreate the, uh, the, 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 the so-called twang from Ambassadors of Twang Death? Um, it's, it's a fun old story, though, and I, I think it's, it is almost fairly unique now in terms of the fact that it's not had any kind of prequel, sequel, or whatever. Um, and it's, you know, maybe it stands out because of that, and I do think perhaps it's arguable that this is the most forgettable slash forgotten story uh, from this season. It, it's the one that's discussed the least. It's the one that's least of note, I guess. Um, but that, and also obviously, it was half of it was missing in colour for for a long time. You could only see it in black and white for a long time, and it was one of the last to come out on video. And uh, it was a later DVD release. So, yeah, it, it's it's one that perhaps doesn't sit in the mind as well as the others. Um, but it's it's still a great little story. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? See, I, I like this one. You're, you're absolutely right that this goes back to the whole capture-escape, capture-escape thing that we got so familiar with in the Troughton era. But 
the capture escape sequences are largely done on film as these ridiculously high, well, for them, high budget, massive military operations or, you know, long chase scenes, car chases. Like, this is probably the single most action-oriented Doctor Who story of the classic era, I would say. I, I can't think of, a, of something else that goes back to the action well as much as this one does. And you can tell how excited they are with whatever budget they have because the amount of stuff here, I mean, they have, they have helicopters that are actually part of the, the, the show. And we've seen, you know, a couple of helicopters before in Enemy of the World and so forth, but it's just, it's so much more in your face here that they've, they've got this, you know, this, this budget, they've got this, this military theme. They've, you know, they've got Havoc doing the action. It's, it, they're showing off, and I think it works. I mean, yeah, objectively speaking, it, it it can be tedious because most of these action sequences don't add much of anything to the story. I mean, the, the whole sequence where you know the, the truck gets stolen by the bad guys and then the doctor steals it back, like that, it, that doesn't change the the plot of the story at all, and it takes like 10 minutes. But it's such a fun and exciting action sequence that that I don't, I really don't mind. Um, it, it's such just a different Doctor Who story in that vein. Um, yeah, I, I I like this one quite a bit. Um, it, it it has that same political element to it where we discover that the the aliens. Are, I mean, it, granted, it tells you in, in the title in a roundabout sort of way, but they, they actually are ambassadors, but they're not ambassadors of death. They're just actual ambassadors. And we, the greedy humans, are exploiting them for our own purposes. And at least here, there's a much more determined opposition to that, where it's not just the doctor saying, hey, let's figure this out. The doctor actually convinces people like, oh, they're peaceful. Um. I, I like, you know, they definitely go with the the, the spy thriller conventions here. You know, Doctor Taltalian is is a good guy, then he's a bad guy, then he's a good guy again, and then oh no no, he's actually a bad guy. I think he, you know, it's basically a triple cross at one point. Um, it is a great story for Liz, as Jimmy was saying. I I, I wish she she wouldn't have spent so much of the story stuck in the in the bunker, but. While she's there, she's she's affecting a lot of change. I think it works. I, I really enjoy this one. It was, you know, one of the last ones to come out. I it never aired on my local TV station. It was one of the last it was the last Pertwee story I saw. And maybe that's why it's got a a special place in my in my memory, but yeah, I, I really like it. Um it's 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 full of sort of great little moments of well as well just sort of moments of brilliance like you mentioned the uh the recapturing uh of the of the uh, truck with the shuttle on and the doctor has that sort of doddery old man routine with bessie and it, it's just great and that's something else we'll get from pertwee going forward sort of you know impersonation and you know there's even the occasional bit of dressing up especially in green death that kind of thing great little moment um it's also worth noting that 
you know, in Silurians, we kind of flirted with the idea of, oh, well, maybe the people are the bad guys before kind of settling on, oh, no, the monsters are. Whereas in this one, the people are very much the bad guys, the humans are the bad guys, and the whole thing, it turns out, boils down to basically a misunderstanding. And uh, John Abenary's character in this throughout is fantastic. It's one of the all-time great Doctor Who performances, um, just every single stage of it, and as he kind of breaks down as the last episode goes on, it's just a perfect performance and thoroughly enjoyable. Um, it's it's a story that's just full of great moments uh, and memorable moments, but as I said before, it's perhaps sort of the the more forgettable one of the season, but in such a good season that that's no means a bad thing whatsoever. Um, we'll move on to the final story of the season then, which um, uh, again finds an interesting way to uh, make up its seven episodes. It kind of it tells a story. It takes us to a parallel universe to show one possible ending of the story, and then brings us back to our own to prevent it. And it's it's another very political one. You know, the Doctor arrives in a fascist britain out and out fascist britain that has had a revolution killed the royal family and there's now a a leader in charge and i believe that uh, there's sort of some expanded universe item somewhere that suggests the fascist leader is actually the alternative universe version of the doctor uh, don't know how sort of seriously that is to be taken or not, but uh, it's it's definitely popped up at some point. Um, I I really like Inferno. I think it's perhaps the most atmospheric Doctor Who ever gets. The the sound of the drill in the background, meaning that all characters have to pretty much shout every line of dialogue. It really feels tense. It really convinces me that the parallel Earth is falling apart is destroyed um throughout the episodes where that goes on um there is just so much to enjoy uh, about this story again it just rolls along seven episodes it, it feels shorter than planet of giants for example uh so jimmy what are your thoughts on this one yeah i absolutely love this one i um I know I didn't pick it as my favourite of the season, but it's definitely the very close runner-up for me. It uses the whole seven episodes so well and dividing action between the two different parallel universes is a clever way to handle it. And I think it also, again, gives Liz a chance to shine pretty well because you don't get that much of the main universe while the Doctor's away, but Liz and the Brigadier sort of, having to fill in for him, it lets them both, gives them both a bit of a chance to, you know, steal the limelight, as it were, and to have that bigger role. Um, I when I, le- I just re-listened, re-watched, sorry, this story today, and I actually, I always take notes for this podcast, but I was just so interested in the story that I literally only made one single dot point in the whole story because I was so focused on enjoying it. Um, and for the record, that was the one fault in the story, I think, was that car chase scene where the Doctor's driving around on the parallel world in Vessi near the start and 
the camera work is so bad. I'm sorry. They, you know, the camera is jumping up and down and you can barely tell what's going on because it's moving too up and down all over the place too fast. It's one tiny fault in an otherwise brilliant story. And that it was so bad that I actually had to pause and make the note when I hadn't paused and made a note for the whole rest of the story says something. But yeah, other than that, it's just wall to wall brilliance. And especially the whole parallel universe setting is just so interesting and seeing the different way people are like um, Liz being a soldier instead of a scientist or um, that Petra, instead of just being Stolman's assistant, she's, she's a scientist herself rather than being sort of forced into that um, sort of just an assistant, just a receptionist sort of thing that she is in the main universe. It's almost like, yep, this ultimate universe is more fascist than right-wing in every possible way, except that the women have more rights and than in the main universe. It's just weird that the fascist universe is like, no, it's not all worse. We have this one tiny good thing about us. And, yeah, kind of funny. Um, but, yeah, the whole story, the whole action is brilliant. The primords sort of look a bit weird and, you know, sort of um, not perhaps the best of makeup. But I think the thing that really helps them is that sort of distorted, groany, grating sort of noise in the background every time they groan or make a noise you hear that sort of electric hiss sort of thing behind it and it just sort of sounds almost like the sort of volcano erupting sort of motif they're going for with the whole um actual drilling project and I think that's yeah that's a place where the sounds definitely helped sell a visual that might not have been so good in and of itself by itself but yeah as I say wonderful story absolutely love it and of course, the primords really aren't that big a part of the story. Um, they're, they're sort of a constant presence from, I think it's the first episode even, isn't it? Sort of somebody is begins the process of transformation. Um, but it's, yet again, the, the real villain of this story is sort of human nature, human greed, which is definitely a theme that has run quite solidly through most of this season. Um it's it's another action by havoc story so we do have some pretty big and uh ambitious i suppose action sequences um but they they are a joy to watch sort of camera work here and there if he as jimmy mentioned there as you mentioned but um yeah all in all it's it's a really solid story uh so greg talk to us about inferno my one complaint with inferno is that there is far too much deference to Professor Stallman to the point where, as the story goes on, you know, there's mysterious green fluid leaking from one of the drill heads. Multiple people have died. People have turned into monsters. The director of the project is acting completely unhinged. Like in the middle of conversations, he'll just have a, a, a mental break and just be staring off into space and at no point does anyone just say enough is enough and stop the project. Everyone just says, oh, well, you know, Stallman's in charge. Nothing we can do. Like, come on. That aside, I love this story. It's so good. It's interesting because you can tell that they don't have the budget for this story that they had for Ambassadors. There's really only about three studio sets. There's the control room, there's the doctor's hut, and there's the, the secondary nuclear power rerouting room 
and then everything else is just on film in the well it looks like an oil refinery and they really want to show off that they've got access to this refinery because every time a character is running outside they always always without fail instead of staying on the gravel well, i gotta go up the ladder and run around in the catwalks i don't know why but it looks great so I'm, I'm happy that they did it the idea of a parallel universe is an absolutely brilliant way to take a seven-part story and make sure it doesn't drag because you can take exactly the same settings the same actors the same characters put a twist on them and there you go. You've got three to four additional episodes of, of intense drama, and, and it really is intense. The these whole everything on the parallel world is is some of the most intense the classic series ever gets. The the acting you really see, like I you know, I, I love Nicholas Courtney. I mean, obviously he's he's a legend for his portrayal of the Brigadier, but you know, the, the Brigadier has a, a few notes that he just pretty much always hits. He's just this, you know, this pleasant character that we all grow to like. This actually lets him branch out significantly from that and, and act. And, you know, and it starts out as a very, you know, stern, brash, you know, brigade leader character. But he breaks down over the course of the story. And you, and you can see how he's really just a complete coward underneath. And, and, and Courtney's performance there is, is, is just fantastic. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Liz as a whole in a little bit, but Caroline John here, also fantastic performance because you, you can re you can see like different layers to section leader Shaw, the, the, the exterior of the, the fascist. And, and yet the doctor manages to, you know, find you know, somewhere in there is still the, the younger woman who wanted to be a scientist, you know, when, when she was a child too. And that, that really works, works well. You guys were saying the atmosphere of it, the, the way they depict the end of the world. I mean, it, it's simple. They're just sticking a, an orange filter on the, the outside film sequences and, and really turning up the, the sound design, but it works. It really feels like the world's ending. The only questionable part there is that right at the end when the lava is coming towards them and they do the the CSO and the doorway of the hut it, it that doesn't look good at all but I mean how are they ever going to realistically do that but and man the rest of it's so good like it's 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 an intense story it's an exciting story it it really defines its characters well like you really as a viewer like grow to love and hate certain people and it oh it's it's so it's so good. I, I love it to death. Yeah, there's just so much to enjoy and so much comes together to create something fantastic. It's it's another case of the writing, the direction, the acting, uh, even for a lot of it, the effects are just excellent and really sort of create something particularly special. Um, so before... Before we go, uh, we'll just have a talk about uh, Liz Shaw, who is a one-season companion. We never actually say goodbye to her at the end of this story. We have that sort of fairly funny scene where the Doctor thinks he's fixed the TARDIS console and can dematerialise, and he sort of appears a moment later, having landed in the rubbish tip. Um, the last shot is sort of Liz laughing as the Doctor and the Brigadier carry on business as usual, uh, the Doctor sort of avoiding having to be humble uh, in the best way that he can. Um, 
I think it's a huge shame that Liz never came back, that we never got a second season. But at the same time, you know, this has been a very transitional season. We were kind of moving away from uh, the 60s team and into this early 70s team. Barry Letts and Terence Dix were getting settled in. It's a couple of stories before everything's as it should be. And the whole season was kind of pre-planned for them. So Liz was kind of a a product of the old regime that unfortunately didn't fit in with the new one. Um, I really like the character and I, I think that she is one of the stronger companions. I don't think she's one of the sort of most well-rounded companions. Uh, she's definitely not one of the most well-written companions, but she um, she's a very, very strong and intelligent character and that does get used when we first meet zoe in the wheel in space we're sort of told about how brilliant she is and we get to see glimpses of it but really for the most part that is kind of ignored whereas liz is always this very very intelligent scientist and we um we we get to sort of see a lot of that in action um in many ways she's kind of the stand-in for the Doctor when the Doctor's busy off doing action sequences or going to Mars or whatever. Um, and I, I quite like that, how sort of the... There are two intelligent characters to lead the story and it certainly helps with the the um, longer episode count in each story. Um, so let's let's just get what you both think about Liz. Your thoughts on Liz, Jimmy? I think Carolyn John gives an amazing performance as Liz always. The character absolutely shines, even though, as you say, she may not be the most fleshed out background-wise. She's just an engaging presence on screen, a great substitute for the Doctor when he's not around and a great sort of not so much assistant as co-worker when he is around. Um, And the way she sort of like him but to a lesser extent doesn't really fit in with the unit sort of crowd. Like she's upset about the Silurian genocide as well and the way she has less deference to the sort of higher authorities or the unit soldiers or the brigadier himself and, you know, I don't work for you, I work for the doctor sort of thing. And I think it's, yeah, it's a great character and a great concept. But I think the one fault with her comes from the writing and it's the way you have her introduced as she's this brilliant scientist with multiple doctorates, multiple degrees, and everyone's calling her Miss Shaw and she never complains. Like, well, there is one line, I think it's in Inferno, where she does say, I'm a doctor too, when she's looking after Pertwee's doctor after he's returned from the parallel universe. But apart from that one line, she never mentions it. Like, she's always seems to be if not happy, then just willing to accept people calling her Miss Shaw, even though she's a doctor with multiple doctorates. I think it would have been better if they'd have a sort of be a bit, you know, I am a doctor, I deserve respect too sort of thing, rather than just being so willing to go with the flow. But, of course, you can't help that. It's the writing of the 70s. And, I mean, having her be that much of a genius and have all these doctorates was probably incredibly lucky that we got such a character in the 70s. and so the not having the titling right is, you know, more of a quibble than a major fault. But, yeah, I think it's one of the few things that detracts from her otherwise brilliant role in so many stories across the season. I think there is actually a a Big Finish Companion Chronicle where 
she sort of questions, when do people start referring to me as Miss Shaw and not Dr. Shaw? And I, th- I think that it, it, she's definitely one of the characters that has benefited from Big Finish. Or Already an excellent character, you know, from these four stories. I don't think anybody could watch them and go, Liz isn't a great character. But, um, you know, when Caroline John was still with us, she did some fantastic stuff with Big Finish. And her stories remain sort of highlights of the Companion Chronicles range as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on Liz? Liz, I think, is the single biggest missed opportunity among all Doctor Who companions. They could have done so much with that character and so much with her relationship with the Doctor. Like like Jimmy was saying, this is someone who is established as being a overqualified scientist in her own right. Someone who is absolutely brilliant, and yet... She's put in a situation where she's now working with an alien from another planet who is even more brilliant than she is. And there's so much room there for drama in terms of, you know, frustration from her as to, you know, not being in the job she thought she was going to be in and having to have the doctor like come to accept her as, as, as effectively an equal. And they, and they very lightly touch on a few of these things, but they never really dive into it. And, and I understand, you know, that wasn't really, you know, what TV of the time did. And especially we know like where the, the production team is, is going to take the show in the future. And we know that isn't the kind of relationship they want with the doctor and the, the quote unquote companion. But I, I really wish they'd, they'd, they'd stuck with her because they, they could have just made it, it could have been such a, a mature and interesting relationship. And instead, you know, it, it, the character is basically just carried by Caroline John. And she does such a great job with it. I, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I'm, I'm surprised that she didn't have a, a bigger acting career than she did because she has to be one of the best companion actors. Like even in this limited amount of time, even in, in one season, like the, the, she, she shows acting skills that, that some of her, you know, contemporaries never did. I mean, there's the end of the Silurians. There's a, when the, when they're watching the entrance to the Silurian cave being blown up, there's an extended shot just on her face, no dialogue. And, and, and you can, like you can see Liz going through multiple emotions, like watching this. And, and, and that's like, that's a level of, and, and that's a level of, of, of performance that we don't usually see in classic Dr. Who. And, and that uh, that's often because most of the actors were never asked to do something like that, but she was, and she really pulled it off. Yeah. I, I, I don't think Liz is portrayed. What we actually see is, is that great of a character, but it's nothing to do with the idea or with the actor or anything like that. I, I think, I think she's just a, a, a great missed opportunity and it, and it's, and it's so sad that she's just written out of the show without a, without so much as a buy your leave. And, and there's just one throwaway line and terror of the autons and, and that's it. And we're moving on. I, I think it's a shame. I absolutely have to agree there. I think that um, the, the fact that we've, this story has a reduced, episode and story count the stories get longer and they're off your episodes overall i think that kind of 
we'll always feel like we never got enough Liz. It's, you know, Joe replaces her and we get three seasons with Joe. We really, really get to know that character and spend a lot of time with that character. But we just, we don't get that with Liz. We we don't get to see sort of Liz's relationships with characters outside of military or scientific communities and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's a real shame, actually. Uh, you do sort of wonder if, you know, could could it have worked with them keeping Liz on and adding Joe into the mix, having two companions? I know that novels and Big Finish have both sort of have done Liz comes back into uh, the third Doctor's life while he's with Joe and they've had a couple of stories where they've both been companions, but it's never sort of been fully explored, I think. Um but, you know, by season eight, we've also added Benton and Matt Yates to the list of regular characters. It, it's a very busy regular cast. So maybe there'd have been no room for Liz and she'd have been as poorly served as as she has been, I guess. Um, but yeah, a wonderful character, wonderful companion. And the season is definitely better because of her presence. That's both Liz and Caroline John is a better season because they are there um well that is all we have time for but it's been great talking about season seven it, it truly is one of my favorites i i think that there's no bad story in there I, I, I think it's near enough faultless it's a near enough faultless run um and it's yeah it's it's something that i think every doctor who fan should watch and re-watch and there's just so much to enjoy. There's so much to pick out. The stories are long. That episode count can be off-putting, but it it's really worth it. It really is worth sort of sitting, sitting through seven-part Doctor Who stories because they found a way to continue to make them entertaining when they could have treaded water. They absolutely did not. Um, so we'll be back uh, to talk about season eight. Uh, in the not too distant future, hopefully. But in the meantime, I will say a goodbye to Jimmy. See you next time. And goodbye to Greg. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back with more spodcasting next week. And we'll be back to talk about series eight, or season eight, sorry, in the not too distant future, when, of course, the master will be arriving. Goodbye now.